Welcome back to There Are Three of Me. I'm Gabrielle Lawson, Philippe de Lamatrac, and Ina Coriel. And actually, there's one other here in the room with me. But he's supposed to be very quiet. His name is actually Vrzskvinia. Yeah, that's hard to pronounce. I had to listen to Google Translate so many times to get that Vrzskvinia. Uh, we write that on the form when we take him to the vet. But we secretly call him Vinny. Except that I are, we already told the vet that in his first year of life, and now he's five, so they figured it out. My little plan of naming my cats with really hard-to-pronounce names and then waiting for the vet to try to say them did work the first time, I mean, 14 years before I let them it, it let it slip that Smurslina was Lena. But anyway, <laughs> Vinny is in here with me. And he's being quiet right now. He's a 12-pound gray, long-haired guy, all gray. And he is a love bug. Um, he will jump into my arms and hug me, knock my glasses off my face, <laughs> rub his face in my hair. And <laughs> he's really sweet. But he is a big, big kitty, so he takes my entire torso but he's in here, and I told him if he stays, he has to be very quiet because we have a story to read. In fact, it's chapter 10 of the Faith Trilogy. Oh, no, he's coming my way. He just may hug me. It's kind of like a physical assault when he does. I mean, he's 12 pounds. Um, so far, he's just walking under the chair. It's going to be a little hard to read if he does decide to do that. It's a really nice physical assault, but it's like, whoosh, there he is, you know? No, he's coming up the back of my chair, so we shall see. He's quietly nuzzling on the back of my head. We'll give it a shot. <laughs> okay, so we have read chapter, well, we've read Faith Part 1, Hope, five chapters, where he was on, where Dr. Julian Bashir was on a planet inside a cave, and he was rescued by... The Enterprise, specifically Data, um, he was taken to Enterprise, and he had to stay there for a while as they tried to figure things out. Sloan tried to frame him for illegally releasing all that biomimetic gel, but um, Cisco showed up and cleared things up, and Bashir was able to, or yeah, Bashir was able to turn the tides by outing Sloan with the pad that Sloan had left with him in the cave. Data played it, they matched the voice to Martin, and so Martin was figured out to be Sloan. And he was put in the brig, but he got out of there. And Bashir had made a device that was his insurance. And he had a very, very complicated code on it so that if he ended up being where he didn't want to be, all the data that he had stolen from Section 31 would be released. And so Sloan had to leave him alone. And Bashir ended up in a fight um, when Section 10, or excuse me, Deck 10, where he was, was boarded by Jem'Hadar. He had to be in the fight. He was doing triage. He was treating people with what little medical supplies they had. And then he was put to work in the, in the infirmary. I guess they call it sick bay on the ship. Yeah, sick bay. And then he went on an away team, which was not fun at all. 
because he ended up falling into a room full of rotting corpses. But uh, they ended up finding a little boy who seemed to be a survivor at first, but turned out to be <sighs> a changeling. And uh, so, more trauma. And it was during this that he got to know Riker a little bit, or rather Riker really got to know him a little bit. And while I thought Data would be my main character, it turned out, uh, from, it, from TNG, it turned out to be, in a sense, Riker. Strangely enough. But once he left, Enterprise went through the airlock onto Deep Space Nine. We moved into Faith Part Two, Forgiveness. And we have read four of the five chapters in this story. Those are chapters six, seven, eight, and nine. Because in this trilogy, I just continue the chapters. So it's not one through five, one through five, one through eight. It's one through five, six through 10, 11 through 18. So we are on chapter 10, the final installment of Faith, part two, Forgiveness. And so far on DS9, he's not gotten his life back quite as he wants. And several times Garrick has said something that's kind of triggered him because he realizes now he has a lot to lose, as Garrick pointed out. And he doesn't feel safe at all. So he's doing things to make himself feel safer. He's still not sleeping, even though he's back home in his own quarters, has his post back. He's not sleeping, so he's going down to the lower decks and he's reworking some things down there for particular a power transfer conduit. And Kira has discovered it with the help of concentration camp inmate. It is never stated which one that is yet. And I honestly don't know if I ever stay, say who, which one it is. He never speaks. Kira doesn't recognize him. So if you remember, Kira went down to Auschwitz soon after Bashir went back. And he went back, hoping to sneak back into his barracks, but the changeling was there. She dragged him off uh, back to Auschwitz I, hung him on the post while she puddled out for a while, killed a couple more people. Um, but in the end, she, on the, early in the morning, she takes him and she go, brings him back through Bear Canal and into Crematoria Four. Kira had gone into the barracks and tried to intimidate the other prisoners to tell her without hurting any of them. <laughs> she, didn't want it to, she didn't want them to call her bluff, but she wanted them to see where Bashir had gone. And they told her that way. That's about all they know they saw because they were inside. So she follows and she follows, but she's a little behind. So she only catches up right after Bashir is put inside the gas chamber. So she was in his barracks. She was walking down the path, you know, around the um, oven heating thing, the, the brick thing in the middle. I don't even know what it's called. I've seen them. I've been there, uh, but I don't remember what they're called. There's not a lot of heat that comes from them. Um, she walked both sides of those. She, she threatened the block el testa and the, and the stubenel testa. Um, so she didn't 
get to know anyone, but she did see a bunch of faces. But she doesn't recognize this one. So who could it possibly be? Well, anyone who had died up to that point. So Piotr, Henri, Shimon, Vladia, they wouldn't be in that barracks. So I'm not sure that it, the story ever says which one of those it actually is. And I can't remember who I was thinking it was when I wrote it. So we're just going to have to go and finish chapter, reading chapter 10 and find out if I do name him. I don't remember if I do. But that is also one of those threads in this story. The first thread was Vladia down in the, in the tunnels. And the second one is this one that O'Brien had a glimpse of. And then Kira not only got the glimpse, she got to see him full on, follow him down to the lower levels, and he lit the area for her so she could see what was going on in the power transfer conduit. And then she is a smart person. And that's where we start at chapter 10. So let's get going. Uh, just a quick note before we begin, I do want to add a trigger warning. Things get real serious toward the end of this chapter and suicide is mentioned. So if you know that is too much too heavy for you right now, my podcast will still be here to come back to. It, um, my stories will still be there on AO3 and fanfiction.net. You don't have to do this right now. All right. You've been warned. And if that's the case, please talk to someone. Please get help. It really does work. Okay? On to the story. Star Trek Deep Space Nine. Faith. Part 2, Forgiveness, by Gabrielle Lawson, Chapter 10. Kira had waited for her shift to end. She still wasn't completely sure what she'd seen down in the lower levels. Oh, the conduit she was sure of. It was the man that still per perplexed her. She'd spent nearly an hour during dinner trying to figure out how to tell someone without telling about the man who'd led her down there and figuring out who to tell at all. O'Brien would be appropriate for the conduit. Maybe he'd had someone working down there, but that didn't explain the man. Only Bashir explained the man because Bashir had once worn the same striped uniform. She didn't think she could go to him directly on this, though. She wasn't sure it was him. And if it was, how would he react when confronted with it? Finally, she decided on Esri. Esri would be a better judge of Bashir's reaction, and she might even listen to the part about the man with an open mind. Kara touched the panel by Dax's door and waited for an answer. The door didn't open, but Esri did answer. Come in. She sounded tired. Kara stepped forward and the door opened. She stopped there in the doorway, though. Esri was facing her on the far wall, upside down. 
Oh, hi, she said, swinging her feet down. I was just thinking. Kira's brow furrowed. On your head? It's been that kind of a day, Esri answered, without really explaining. She stood up and smoothed down the wrinkles in her uniform. Is there something wrong? Kira shook her head and looked toward the couch. I need to talk, she said, about something that happened today, something that's been happening, I suppose. Esri held out her hand toward the couch, inviting Kira to sit. Kira moved quickly to it, and Esri sat with her, tucking a leg under her body. What happened? It's strange, Kira warned. I'm a woman of less than 30 years walking around with a slug that's over 300 in my gut, Esri admitted, smiling. I can deal with strange. Kira chuckled. Esri always managed to lighten the mood when it needed it. I suppose you can, Kira agreed. She took a deep breath and started the only place she could think to start. I saw someone going into Quark's today. Now Esri's brow furrowed. And that's strange? Kira shook her head. Not just any someone. A man. Esri's eyebrows shot up. A man in a striped Auschwitz uniform, Kira added, stopping any lighthearted thoughts Dax might have had about Kira seeing a man. Esri's face darkened immediately. Jadzia had seen more, more of the camp than Kira had. Auschwitz? Kira nodded. I'm certain. He had the star on his chest and a number, lower than Julian's. Esri ran a hand through her short hair. That's not possible. She stood up. Julian is the only living survivor. The oldest living survivor from that time died in the early 21st century. Why would someone be wearing that kind of uniform in Quark's? Quark didn't see him, Kira threw out. No one else seemed to notice. He looked right at me from the upper level. But I was the only one who saw. Esri sat back down and looked at her carefully. And you've been feeling okay? Kira shook her head and put up a hand. I've already reasoned it all out. I didn't hallucinate him. I didn't even recognize him. Nor was he a changeling. He did things they couldn't do. He wasn't a prophet. At least he didn't act at all like Captain Sisko has had described the prophets behaving. Everything was real. He wanted me to follow. I followed. He told you that? No, Kira said. He didn't say anything. I just knew he wanted me to follow. Esri just nodded, but her lips were pursed together. Where did he lead you? Lower levels, Kira answered. Section D. Two levels below anything we use, into the dark. Only I could see him. At first, I couldn't see anything but him. At first? When we got there, to the place he was leading me to, there was light around him, like it came from him. He showed me a power transfer conduit and left the light there, though he stepped away. I opened it, and it was perfect. Not one wire or connection was missing or out of place. Esri shook her head again. I don't understand. We don't use those levels. They were never repaired. Exactly, Kira told her. This one was. And it wasn't just missed by the Cardassians. I thought of that. There was no dust in it or around it. Someone repaired it recently. Someone that knew a man in an Auschwitz uniform. Why else would he lead me there? He left as soon as I'd found it. Just gone. It took me an hour to find my way out in the dark. Julian? Esri asked, putting the pieces together just as Kira had. Who else had known such a man? Lieutenant Jordan had spent more time in the camp than any of the others looking for Bashir, but he'd been gone for nearly two years now, and he hadn't stayed around to socialize with the prisoners. You think the man was some sort of ghost? Kira felt her cheeks blush. Esri was Starfleet. 
I'm saying I don't know what he was, she returned with a bit more anger than she wanted. I just know he wanted me to see the conduit, to know that someone had done it, to know who that someone was. Why else would he wear the uniform? It wouldn't mean anything to anyone but Julian. Forget the man, as we think about Julian, why would he be down there repairing power transfer conduits in the dark? Esri stood again, blowing out a long-held breath. He took walls apart, she said finally, pacing a few steps. In his mind, he took apart walls and equipment, stripped them back layer by layer when he was in the cave. It was how he passed the time, what kept him sane. It's a common enough coping tactic given long-term isolating conditions. I read a case study of a woman, a prisoner in the Vietnam conflict on Earth in the 20th century. She built houses from the ground up. Kira understood that. Majoran torture victims had done the same sorts of things to keep their minds occupied and off their torment. But she was still worried about Bashir. So now he's doing it for real? In the dark. Esri nodded. The cave was dark. He was there a long time. Maybe it became a comfort to him. It's quiet in the dark. It's probably chaotic on the station in comparison. It was on the Enterprise. He hasn't been out that long, really. Less than a month. It makes sense that he'd go back to the dark. Was the conduit active? Kira shook her head. Then I wouldn't worry, Esri said. At least it's nothing dangerous, nothing we use. He can't do any damage without power, and I think he's rational enough not to do anything dangerous anyway. He's probably just do been doing it to calm the chaos. I'll talk to him, though. Just not tonight. He lost Matingua tonight. Kira felt better. She did trust Julian not to do anything dangerous to the station, and Esri's reassurances made sense. I heard, she said, replying to Esri's remark about Matingua. I'm not sure why we still remember her if she was never here. Esri sunk back onto the couch, looking morose again. Apparently she was, and according to temporal investigations, she will be again, over and over again. It was late, and it wasn't the best time. Sisko realized that, but he just didn't feel it could wait any longer. He couldn't wait. He didn't want to face another staff meeting like the last two. He didn't want to avoid Bashir on the promenade. He wanted to put an end to the power game they were playing. Maybe having lost a patient would cool Bashir's temper, making, making him more able to listen. He expected a clipped reply or terse acknowledgement to his request. Instead, Bashir simply said, Yes, sir. No tone, no harshness. Sisko started to doubt. When he appeared in ops, however, Sisko's resolve came back to him. Bashir's face was set hard, his eyes cold. He st stepped through the door and stood at attention. You wanted to see me, he said, and Sisko could still not identify the tone. Yes, he said. I think we need to talk. We talked this morning, Bashir replied. Yes, they had. I know, but I don't think we resolved anything. There's nothing to resolve. I think there is, Sisko said. He stood up and braced his arms on the top of the desk. I've spent the last three weeks thinking about what you said back on the Enterprise. And you were right. You opened my eyes to a lot of things. He folded his arms and turned to look out the viewport. When does the line begin to fade, the line between good and bad, right and wrong? What if, in trying to win, we end up looking in the mirror and not recognizing ourselves? Bashir was silent behind him. Sisko could see him in the reflection. He'd moved to parade rest. He didn't relax at all. I'll admit, Sisko went on, that I haven't even looked at, the, at that mirror since the war began, not until I saw you on the Enterprise. 
Then I looked and I didn't recognize myself. I didn't like what I saw there. I've apologized and I know that isn't enough for you, for anyone. It can't change what I did, but nothing can. He turned. It was enough. I can't change the past, Julian. I can't go back in time and erase it. The words were out before he realized it. Back in time was not exactly the best choice on this night. Can't you? Bashir asked, his voice flat, matter of fact. You can break the prime directive when it suits you and commit a felony when it's convenient. What's to stop you breaking temporal policy? You, Sisko said, deciding not to take offense at Bashir's words. They needed to work things out, not argue more. You and me. You made me look in that mirror again. I don't have the right to decide for a whole quadrant which past and which future is right. We played it out the way we played it, right or wrong, it's done. So that's just it, Bashir asked, his face had darkened. We just forget about it now, pretend it never happened. No, Sisko said, stamping a hand down on its desk again. No, but we go on. I got the message, doctor, loud and clear. I don't need you to punish me anymore. I can manage that all by myself. From now on, we go back to being captain and lieutenant, commander and doctor, and maybe we can go back to being friends. And maybe someday we can go back to being friends, but that's your decision. I won't force it, but I will enforce the chain of command, and I'll expect you to respect it. Bashir straightened to attention. Yes, sir. Sisko knew he wasn't going to get any more than that. He was surprised, actually, that he didn't get an argument. He nodded. Dismissed. Julian Bashir felt like his world, what was left of it, was collapsing. Esri had him on the one side, Sisko on the other. He couldn't go back to the infirmary, not now, not just yet. His shift had ended hours ago, thankfully. He told the turbolift to take him to the habitat ring. Then he changed his mind. Esri might look for him there. He didn't want to talk to her, or anyone else. He just wanted to disappear. He found himself again in the lower levels, the same deck he'd visited now and then since his return. He knew his way by heart now. He didn't need to grope along the walls. Darkness was something familiar to him, something comforting. He, it hid everything equally, what one wanted to see and what one didn't. He located his conduit and felt inside. It was ready. He only needed to tie it into the EPS system. He took a cue from Jordan's clone and tapped into several dozen different nodes, taking just a bit of power from each. Each would only register the slightest margin of drop-off, not enough to cause alarm. It took hours to accomplish all the tie-ins. He had to move from one panel to another along the entire deck. But finally, he was ready. He found his way back to the conduit and connected the last piece of the circuit. And the lights came on. Damn. The sudden lights snapped at his eyes. He hadn't meant that to happen. He opened the circuit again and the light faded. Someone might have noticed. It was simple when he thought of it. The lights had been on the whole time. They simply had no power. He had to find all the controls and disconnect them. By the time he emerged from the lower levels, all the shops on the promenade were closed, except Quark's. But Quark's didn't close until the early hours of the morning. He passed by the upper level and noticed that the waiters were just cleaning up. Uh, apparently, it was the early hours of the morning. He went on to the turbolift and headed back to his quarters. He felt numb and hollow as he walked. Working below had done that for him. It was better than the hurt and anger he had felt before. It was the best he could hope for anymore. He opened the door to his corners and jumped when he heard the voice behind him. 
No more caffeine for you, Esri said. He spun around. What are you doing here? She shook her head. Shall we go in? She didn't wait for him to answer, but stepped past him into the room. He looked around, thinking of leaving again, but he knew he couldn't explain that. He followed her. She began as soon as the door closed. When was the last time you slept? He'd barely made it into the room. He'd have to pass her to go anywhere. Last night, he told her without having to lie. He had fallen asleep last night eventually. She crossed her arms over her chest. More than three hours, she pressed. He didn't answer. He didn't know the answer. So what do you do with all that spare time, she asked. Bashir felt the heat rising in his chest again. Why was she doing this? Why now? He glared at her, but she didn't stop. Esri had spent hours thinking after Kira had left. Not about Matingwa. Those thoughts were too painful. She thought about Bashir, about the conduit, about the darkness and the chaos, about what Bashir didn't get to talk about in their last session. Each of those things alone were minor. He could endure, even thrive, as he had shown on the Enterprise and earlier that night when he'd put the pieces together about Matingwa and Fenner. But together they told of the hurt he was feeling, of the despair he was trying to mask. He was good at it, too, masking it. He'd managed to get by an empath hiding it so well. She'd already told him how impressed she was with that. Her earlier accusation had been harsh, maybe too harsh. It was possible he didn't know how to cope any other way. Seventeen years was a long time to build a habit of hiding. He had to learn to heal. She had to show him how. No more hiding. She faced him. Do you sit and imagine taking apart the walls, she asked, forcing herself to be strong. Or do you really take apart the walls? He still didn't answer, but she had surprised him. His mouth popped open for a moment. Where? She pressed. She wanted him to admit it, to talk about it. He turned away from her. He wanted a place to run, she guessed. She hadn't left him any room. The lower levels? That was your handiwork, wasn't it? The lights went on down there tonight. Ops registered it. That was you. She turned around, looking at the walls, the ceiling. The walls seemed different somehow, though she couldn't put her finger on any particular differences. And here? What did you do here? I won't tell you. Finally. She turned back to him and sighed. She'd tried to give him time, but somehow tonight she'd sensed he was running out of time. They'd finally managed to get somewhere in their sessions, and he'd been called away. He was always being saved by something to keep him from having to face what was hurting him. She wouldn't let it happen again. Why, she pushed, in case I'm a changeling? His face flushed. In case someone's listening in, he shot back. He was angry. Well, maybe that would make him talk. Julian, she tried, looking around again. She saw no listening devices or surveillance equipment. I want to feel safe in my own quarters, he told her, raising his voice. I don't think that's unreasonable. She faced him again. She lowered her voice. Then why don't you she asked. Why don't you feel safe here? Why don't I? He opened his arms and spun once around. Why should I? We've been through this before. He took her arm, tight enough that his grip hurt, and pulled her to the bedroom. He pointed to the chair across from the foot of his bed before he let go of her arm. Have you any idea how many times I've awoken to, fi to find Sloane sitting in that chair? Or how about the time I woke up thinking I was in that bed when I was really in a holosuite? How about when I went to a medical conference and woke up in some godforsaken asteroid? Why should I feel safe here? She wanted to hold him, to tell him he'd have no reason to fear. 
but he did. She couldn't change that. He was right. The station security hadn't been able to protect him. Of course he'd try to protect himself. Survival instinct was a hard one to fight. I'm not saying you shouldn't be afraid, Julian, she tried, softening. But you can't live like this. I can't live at all, he breathed, turning back to the living room. She followed, hoping she hadn't heard right. Her heart ached for him, but she kept her head. She was his counselor, and a counselor was what he needed. I don't sleep, he told her, because I can't see them coming when my eyes are closed. I don't try to stay awake. I just can't sleep. So I do things. I work on the walls. I don't work on them to stay awake. I work on them to fall asleep. He hadn't repeated the words she'd feared, but he was giving her something. Trying to make them safer? She concluded in question. He nodded, and she was curious as to just what he'd done to the walls in his quarters, but that wasn't important. Let me help you, she pleaded. He turned on her. How? How can you help? How can you help me? Give me medication to make me sleep, or maybe to make me feel like everything's okay when it isn't? You can't do any more than he can. He? That threw her off. Who? He turned away, squared his shoulders. He wouldn't answer that. She'd have to guess. It wasn't that hard. The captain. His shoulders dropped, but he didn't turn back. What can't he change? What happened? But he was gone, closed off. This is what he needed. This was the point he always managed to get out of talking about. Cisco. Something had happened between him and the captain that neither would talk about, something that was destroying the man before her. Talk to me, she ordered, still softly but firm. She didn't want to threaten him, but he wouldn't even look at her. She took a big breath. You have to talk to me, she said, or I'll have to relieve you of duty. He spun around, but he wasn't angry now. He looked terrified. I can't, he pleaded. His tone stabbed into her heart, but she had to be resolute. He was using the infirmary to escape from his problems when he needed to face them to find a way through them. You're destroying yourself, she countered. You need a break anyway. You've been through a lot, and you just lost a patient. I've lost patients before, he tried, stepping closer to her. His eyes begged her. I can't, he repeated. She felt like she was kicking a puppy, but she held her ground. You're relieved of duty until further notice. I'm sorry. You know how to find me. She turned away from him and walked out the door. She waited until she got around the corner before she let herself cry. Then she called O'Brien. O'Brien tapped the door panel and thought about how he might get the door open if Julian didn't answer. He was surprised to find the door wasn't locked. He opened it and stepped inside. The room was dark, and it took a few minutes for his eyes to adjust, just like it had on the Enterprise. Esri hadn't said anything except to go see Julian, so he wasn't sure what to expect. He'd gotten dressed and left immediately with Keiko's encouragement and a strong cup of coffee. Finally, his eyes adjusted enough to see the furniture, but not Julian. He stepped farther into the room. He crossed over to the bedroom and looked in. He worried for a moment that he might have woken him up, but he tossed that thought out. The door would have woken him. Besides, Esri seemed sure he was supposed to come over. He didn't see him in the bedroom, so he turned back to the main room. He was about to call for lights when he saw the man in stripes again. The hair on the back of his neck stood up. 
The man was standing just to the left of the main door. He was thin, very thin, and O'Brien knew where he'd seen those stripes before, on Julian, but this wasn't Julian. O'Brien wasn't even sure what this was, let alone who. The man pointed, and O'Brien followed with his eyes. There, past the end of the couch, was a leg. O'Brien turned back to the door, but the man was gone. O'Brien shook off the goosebumps he'd gotten from the man and went to the end of the couch. Julian was slumped against the wall there. He had a med kit beside him. Open. O'Brien knelt down beside him. He looked at the kit and tried to decide what was in there, but it was too dark to tell. Julian? What's with the kit? Julian didn't answer, but O'Brien could guess. He looked again. Nothing seemed out of place as far as he could tell. He was relieved, but not much. He'd been where Julian was sitting before. He'd had a phaser then. Julian did speak eventually. She relieved me of duty. If its voice was quiet, almost a whisper. O'Brien remembered the tone. He'd used it when he told O'Brien of his enhancements and how he'd been a disappointment to his parents. Esri? O'Brien asked, bringing his mind back to the present. He decided that if he sat down beside Julian, he'd have to move the med kit farther away. He pushed it aside. Julian didn't look at him. Don't worry, Chief, he told O'Brien as he sat down. I seem to be incapable of suicide. I could have. I was there, not two meters from the fence, but I just couldn't move forward. Not like Vladya. I admire Vladya. He was jumping around so much, O'Brien had a hard time keeping track. But he supposed he'd done the same after Agrafi, so he tried. Fence, Vladya, the guy at the door, though O'Brien couldn't figure out why in the hell he was the one who saw the guy at the door. These things were of Auschwitz. Vladya, the chief remembered, had committed suicide by putting himself on the electrified fence. What was there to admire? He gave up, Julian. Bashir shook his head and his voice did hold admiration. He didn't give up. He didn't throw himself on the fence in some fit of desperation. He stood up suddenly and paced, acting out Vladya's actions. He folded his clothes and put them aside so that someone else could use them. Then he walked straight to the fence and lifted his arms to heaven in the hope that there was one, and he touched it. He dropped his arms to his side. He wasn't ashamed or hurried or desperate, but he ended it. He was stronger than me. Maybe you were too, Miles. He slumped down on the couch. But I stopped you. O'Brien used the arm of the couch to lift himself up. I'm glad you did. It would only have made things worse. Keiko and Molly. Bashir interrupted. Yeah, you have them. This was not a talk O'Brien had ever figured he'd have with Julian. Julian was better at it. You have people too, Julian. You have your family. They're on Earth, but you have people here, too. You have me and Kira and all the others. Esri, too. She only did what she thought was best. You relieved me of duty, too, remember? I hated you for it, but you were right to do it. It saved my life. It would only be worse if you died. Trust me, I know from experience. So do I, Miles, in a sense. And do you know what I remember? Julian looked at him, waiting for an answer. O'Brien was afraid of what he might say, but he knew Bashir had to say it. What? Nothing. No pain, no cruelty, no betrayal. Just darkness. 
O'Brien guessed he was talking about the cave, but he thought maybe Julian was leaving some things out, like dampness and cold and hunger. He wanted something positive, though, to counter Julian's negatives. No joy, he decided. There's joy in life, too, Julian, not just pain. Julian nodded, and O'Brien thought maybe the dark moment had passed, but Julian wasn't finished. But there is a point where the joy is overwhelmed, Miles, and I don't see it getting any better. I'm not just paranoid, you know. They are all out to get me. The Dominion, Section 31, one thing after another. They're wearing me down. Hell, I am worn down. I'm worn out. What is there left, Miles? What? Only one thing that mattered. You. And what is that worth? O'Brien heard his, er er his earlier words spoken in the same room. Unnatural, meaning not from nature. Freak or monster would also be acceptable. It was worth more than O'Brien had ever managed to tell him. Julian was the best friend he'd ever had and probably would ever have. While I, for one, hold it in high regard, I don't get out of bed for just anyone. But you're not me. Julian sank further into the couch. I was a mistake from the moment I was born, or from the moment they changed me. None of this would have happened if they'd let me just grow up. He wasn't sure why O'Brien had come when he did, and he wasn't sure why he was arguing with O'Brien now. Maybe because he wanted to hear the other side. Maybe. And I'd be dead, O'Brien pointed out. And Kira and Dax and Worf and Garrick and, and thousands of others. And the children on Baranus Three would still be dying. There would have been other doctors, Bashir held. O'Brien shook his head. Not as good as you. Not as dedicated as you. That used to be enough for me, he said before he could think of a reason not to. But it isn't anymore. I want to be trusted. I want to trust. And I can't do that anymore. You are trusted, O'Brien argued back. Trusting is your choice. You keep shutting people out. You think if you push people away, they can't ever hurt you. But in the end, you just end up alone. It destroys you in the end. Bashir wished it was that easy. He'd let Miles in further than Ezra or Troy. But he wasn't afraid anymore. He'd already lost the one thing he'd still been afraid of losing. Being a doctor. It already has. No, O'Brien said, facing him. It hasn't. If it had, we wouldn't be talking right now. I know there's a lot of bad out there right now, and it feels like it's all coming after you, but there are still good things out there, too. Maybe you can't see it now, but they always outweigh the other stuff. Good wins out in the end. When? Miles? Bashir asked, really looking at O'Brien for the first time that night. He really wanted to know. I've tried to be good all my life. I'm not winning. O'Brien smiled. You're still here, he said. You survived everything they've thrown at you, and you're still here, and you're still good. You have won. Bashir dropped his eyes. Why did he feel like he'd lost? Why did he keep losing? But I don't want to fight anymore, he told the chief. I'm tired. So let us help you. O'Brien tried again. You don't have to fight it alone. You're not the only good guy out there. O'Brien took a deep breath and sighed. This was going to be hard, but it needed saying. 
Look, Julian, I've always shied away from telling you how I feel about you. I teased you when you came back from the Dominion. That was wrong. I shouldn't have. You're my best friend, Julian. My life isn't the same when you're not here. It's not just that it isn't as much fun. There's a piece missing. You're a part of my life. You're a part of my children's lives. You are a part of this station, a very important part, and I don't mean the chief medical officer. You're our heart, Julian. Without you, the station dies. It turns and hums and quarks is still open, but it's dead. That's what it was like when we thought you were gone. The station was dead. Bashir looked at him as if he'd sprouted a second head, but there was something else there, something that told O'Brien he was getting through, so he didn't stop. And I know there's something between you and Sisko that neither of you will talk about, but you're part of him, too. Ever notice how he always took your side when you and Worf would offer opposite opinions? He always went with you. You're his conscience. He needs you. We all need you. You can trust us. You're not alone. O'Brien woke up when the computer chirped. His neck hurt, and he rubbed it, trying to get the kink out. He was still on the couch, but Julian was gone. The time is 06.30, the computer reported. Staff meeting in 30 minutes. O'Brien got up and went to the bedroom to see if Julian was there. They talked long into the remainder of the night, or morning. Or rather, O'Brien had done the talking. Julian had stopped somewhere in the middle and just sat staring at the ceiling. Eventually, his eyes had closed, and O'Brien let his own head fall back on the couch, too. He was afraid to leave Bashir alone, even while he slept. But Julian wasn't in the bedroom, either. Computer, where is Dr. Bashir? O'Brien asked. Dr. Bashir is in the infirmary, the computer replied. O'Brien wondered about that. He'd been relieved of duty. Had he forgotten? Bashir finished the letter and downloaded it to the pad. He checked the time, 06.30. He had to hurry. The night nurse hadn't known he was relieved of duty. He told her he had to catch up on some paperwork before the staff meeting. She left him alone. But Jabara would be in soon, and the news would be known. He stopped for a moment and looked back at the infirmary, his infirmary, his home. He remembered the Lethian and how he'd stopped him here in what was for him the heart of the station. He should have died then when he was still innocent of all the evil in the universe. He, he said a silent goodbye to the place and turned away. A few people looked up when he reached Ops, but their heads dropped again. It wasn't unusual to see him there. No one questioned him when he walked up to Sisko's office. He checked first, quickly looking through the window doors to make sure that Sisko wasn't there. The doors opened. He stepped in and laid the pad carefully on the center of the desk. No one paid any attention as he left Ops. He took a different path back to the habitat ring, well away from the rest of the senior staff's quarters, except for Kira's. He went by hers and stopped in front of, of her door. He touched the panel and waited for her to answer. O'Brien reached the infirmary but couldn't find Bashir there either. He asked the nurse on duty if she'd seen him, but she said he'd just missed him. He'd come in to do some paperwork before the meeting. That didn't add up. He didn't need to go to the meeting since he'd been relieved of duty. Apparently, this nurse hadn't heard. He asked her if she knew where Bashir was headed after he left. He didn't say, she told him, but he did look unusually melancholy. Of course, I haven't seen him much since his return. I'm just going on memory. He was usually so cheerful. Yeah, O'Brien replied. He was. Thanks. If you see him, tell him I'm trying to find him, will you? Of course. 
O'Brien stopped by the information kiosk on the promenade and asked the computer again where Bashir might be. Dr. Bashir is in the infirmary. O'Brien went right back, surprising the nurse. He went straight to Bashir's office and started opening cabinets and drawers. The nurse followed, becoming worried herself by his behavior. He didn't explain, though, and kept looking. He found it in the med kit on his desk. O'Brien recognized the kit from the night before. Bashir's combat rested between two hyposprays. O'Brien took it out and slammed the kit shut. Kira didn't expect visitors at this time of day. She wasn't dressed yet. She'd only woken up ten minutes before. She was fin just finishing breakfast. She supposed it had to be important if it couldn't wait for the morning staff meeting. She walked over to the door and pressed the panel to open it. Julian was standing on the other side. He looked tired and there was a fine stubble beginning to be visible on his chin. His eyes held hers like the man's had in quarks. He didn't say anything. What is it? She asked, stepping aside so he could enter. He didn't move from the doorway. I just wanted to thank you, he said finally, quietly. Thank you for believing in me, for keeping my post open. I won't be needing it now. Promise me that you'll find someone to fill it. You promised before. Kira shook her head. I did, she said, but why? He took her hand. Thank you, he repeated. Goodbye. He released her hand and turned away down the corridor. Kira started after him, but she hesitated. She was still in her nightgown. Julian, she called, but he was already a few doors down. She raced back to her room to grab her robe and then headed out the door. He was gone. Julian, she called out again. A door opened. Colonel, Lieutenant Mubarak stepped into the corridor, still without his shoes. Is something wrong? Kira looked down the corridor again, hoping to see him or even the man in stripes. Nothing. No, she told Mubarak. It's nothing. She turned back and dressed quickly. Bashir reached his own quarters without drawing attention. He almost felt like he was already gone, a ghost floating through the corridors that no one could see, that no one wanted to see. But he knew that wasn't true. He could be seen, for a while yet. He paused before he went in and asked the computer where Chief O'Brien was. Chief O'Brien is in the infirmary, the computer replied. Looking for me, Bashir finished silently. He'd have to hurry. The shuttle would be leaving before the staff meeting began without him. He packed only a few things. He'd already learned to live without most of his belongings. He looked at his device, his insurance policy to keep Sloan away. He placed it in the replicator and it disappeared. Let them come. Cisco turned the bacon and moved to put the bread in the toaster. He could hear Cassidy getting dressed in the bedroom. He was determined that today would be a better day. He would not let Bashir control his emotions today. He would not neglect his family. Do you want eggs with your toast? He called out. Sunny side up, she answered. Have you seen my boots? He started to tell her they were under the bed, but his stomach felt like it flipped. A light flashed before his eyes and he felt dizzy for a moment. He closed his eyes until it faded, grabbing the edge of the table for support. When he opened them again, he knew he was having a vision, only this time the prophets weren't using familiar faces. You need him, the prophet said. His voice was accented. He wore a striped uniform like Bashir had in Auschwitz. Need him for what? Sisko asked, hoping this time they'd be less cryptic. The prophet leaned in close to him. They'd never done that before. You are lost in darkness. Let him be the light. The light flashed again. The vision was over. The, the bacon was burning. Ensign Mallory looked up when the captain jumped off the turbolift before it had finished rising. Sir? 
The captain ignored him and ran right into his office. He was the second senior staffer to come up acting strange this morning. Mallory wondered what was going on. He hadn't wanted to bother the doctor when he'd come up, and he knew better than bothering the captain when he looked like he did. So Mallory kept his mouth shut and his eyes open. The captain emerged from his office holding a pad in his hands, and Mallory thought it might have been the one the doctor had put in there. Why hadn't they just called each other? It was a bit old-fashioned to leave notes. Sisko left again, barking at the turbolift computer to take him to the docking ring. Bashir reached the docking ring just as the other passengers were getting on board. There were only a few of them. This was the early shuttle. Not many people were up at this hour unless they were on duty, in which case they wouldn't need to be getting on the shuttle. He had his wish, the same wish he'd told his parents when his secret got out. He could leave the station quietly. Only Kira knew, and she didn't know the details. He had a few minutes. He looked out the viewport one last time. The wormhole flared, though no ship had approached it, as if to say goodbye. He turned and stepped into the airlock. Doctor! Sisko's voice stopped him. Wait! He turned and saw Sisko running to meet him. Anger flared in his chest. He couldn't even give up without losing. You can't stop me, Bashir told him. You're not my commanding officer anymore. Just wait, please, Sisko said, panting. What is so important? Bashir demanded. The shuttle would be leaving soon. He only had a few minutes, and this was not how he wanted to be leaving. Kira was the last person he'd wanted to see, and he'd seen her. Sisko wasn't supposed to be a part of it. Sisko caught up to Bashir and stopped to catch his breath. You are. Bashir was confused. He dropped his bag to the floor. What's that supposed to mean? It means I'm sorry, Sisko said. So you've said. Bashir was tired of hearing it. Sorry doesn't change anything. It doesn't take away what you did to me. It doesn't bring that planet back to life. It doesn't change anything. I know that, Sisko said but I can't change the past. All we have left is what we do with the future. I'll do better. I can't lose you. You lost me a long time ago, Bashir told him. You lost yourself. But he didn't move away. He waited, though he wasn't sure why. It was all going wrong. Sisko was here. The shuttle was preparing to leave. Bashir glanced back at the corridor and saw O'Brien stop in the doorway. Kira and Esri weren't far behind. At least they didn't come in. It won't happen again. How can you say that? Bashir threw back at him, not caring now if the others would hear. He was supposed to have left quietly, and Sisko had ruined it. Two weeks from now, you'll be busily engaged in the war, plotting this and that, and you'll forget all about me. They'll come for me again, and you won't even notice I've gone. Just like before. Bashir turned away. He didn't want to miss the shuttle. Sisko caught his arm. Not this time. Bashir spun around, feeling that familiar fire burning in his chest. Take your hand off of me, he demanded. I can't. I resigned. You told me to renew your faith, Sisko reminded him. Give me the chance. Sisko's calm voice only infuriated Bashir more. I gave you lots of chances, he spat. You threw me to the wolves. Sisko let go of his arm. I won't force you, he said. I need you to stay. Bashir hesitated. Behind him, a steward stepped out of the shuttle and called for last boarding. Bashir held up a hand to him. The man nodded. They'd wait a bit longer. Why are you doing this? Bashir asked, turning back to Sisko. Because I think we've got it all backwards, Julian, Sisko replied, looking him right in the eyes. I'm not supposed to renew your faith. You're supposed to renew mine. 
Bashir glared at him. He didn't get that. He was the one with nothing to believe in, not Sisko. I don't want that responsibility. The responsibility is mine, Sisko told him. Stay. Why me? Bashir asked him. He studied Sisko's face as he answered. It was different now, but it was familiar. It was the same face that met him in Auschwitz when he thought the captain was the changeling, the one that wanted to save him. Sisko smiled. Because I have faith in you. Sisko was acting strangely, and Bashir just didn't understand it. He shook his head as he backed away toward the shuttle. Then you're a fool. Esri ran forward at the last moment. No! she shouted, but it was too late. Bashir stepped through the door onto the shuttle, and the door closed. Faith Chapter 5 was a minor cliffhanger. Faith Chapter 10 is a very, 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 very big one. <laughs> Whoa. Yeah. It was not easy reading that. I really admire all the people who perform audiobooks. Um, getting the voices, each character to be different so you always knew who was talking, different accents and everything. Getting the emotions of Bashir in the same scenes as who was so despairing and uh, O'Brien who was trying to help him back and forth. With, it's not easy to do um, when you're reading out loud. But I do try to act it out at least somewhat. I like want to, when you read, you act it out in your head as you read, Right. You hear their voices, the way they're talking, and the writers' tags around it give you the, you know, kind of clues to where it goes, the pathway of, you know, how they're saying it. But you hear it. You read it a certain way. And so, I, you know, if you're listening to this, I wanted you to hear it like I did, you know? And it made me cry. I tried not to fully cry because then it's hard to read out loud, but I did. I teared up completely. Ugh. And the clues were in there. O'Brien said it was the same tone he used in that, you know, Dr. Bashir, I presume, when he called himself a freak or a monster and that he was a great disappointment to his parents. Oh, Sid was incredible in that scene. And it just broke my heart. So trying to invoke that same tone into that writing so that you knew exactly how he was saying it, if you'd watched the show. But then trying to voice it while also voicing the, vo the voice that was trying to be reason, which was O'Brien. And I thought he was doing a pretty good job. But Bashir was really, really down there. And I think I'm going to go back and add something to the intro. So if you're listening to this now, I probably have um, put that trigger warning in there. Yeah, Bashir is not doing well at all. And when I read this, I found myself kind of blaming Esri. I don't 
really blame her, but she was like the last tiny little straw boop, that pushed him over the edge, you know? Because Cisco was the thing that he couldn't tell her, and he really, 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 really couldn't tell her. And she did the only thing she could do from what the part of the story that she could see. But Cisco has the other part that she can't see, and Bashir absolutely could not tell her. Just like Cisco couldn't tell her. And so taking away the one place where he felt normal, the one thing where he got his life back, being a doctor, was just the last straw. If you think about it like he's balanced on this precipice that Cisco is making him lean over, and then she just drops this little straw and it's just enough weight that he topples over. So it's not her fault, but she was that point. And Sid does despair so very well in Dr. Bashir, I presume. So it was easy to visualize it when I wrote this. And that's where I leave it. Which is probably, I know it is kind of for me, very unsettling. It's a very unsettling place to be left. Now, back in the day, people had to wait a year for the rest of the story. <laughs> you don't have to wait that long. You do have to wait a little while. Just like I did after Faith Part 1, I'm going to take a little break until I finish the chapter I need to write. And once I have done that, I will come back with Chapter 11, Faith Part 3, Peace. But I want to tell you, if I've left you down in the dumps and you're maybe feeling that kind of despair, please talk to someone. I don't mean to kind of add pain onto pain for someone who's in real life going through it. Fiction is escapism, and somehow we enjoy seeing our favorite characters go through it. I know I do. I read stories like this all the time. <laughs> um, yeah. We were watching Picard season two, which we haven't finished. Um, it's out now, so I, if I'm spoiling, sorry, you can watch the whole season two. It's been done, but we just, we haven't caught up. But Elnor got shot, and I was okay with Elnor getting hurt. For that reason, we like to see our favorite characters going through it. But then he died, and I started hitting my husband on the arm. I'm like, no, he's not supposed to die, and I'm just slapping, 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 slapping. I'm not abusive to my husband. He he would he could take it. I wasn't hitting him that hard, but but it was just still don't don't where I talk about 
the good evil and the bad evil as a writer. I hope they turn it around and show me that it was good evil and don't leave it like it is because right now it's bad evil. Bad evil is when they hate you for it. Good evil is when they love you for it. Hurting Elnor appropriately would have been good evil. Killing him. He was my favorite character all through the first episode. Not when he was a little child, but when he did his flippy flip thing and sliced that guy's head off. <laughs> oh my God, I was there. I was like, oh, he's, yeah, I like him. <laughs> And he even, the actor even said he was like the Star Trek Legolas. And I'm like, uh-huh, he is. <laughs> and I like Legolas. So, yeah, I like Elnor. And they killed him. And I'm just like, oh, there better be a way he comes back. <laughs> and if they do, uh, it has made, you know, something about Ausfanchim like all wrong, which is a little disturbing to me. Because if... And don't, please, don't spoil me. I do ask you to email me or tweet me all the time, but please do not tweet me or or in, email me about Elnor and the end of the series. I haven't seen it yet. I've seen one, maybe two episodes since he died. So please, don't spoil. But if he does come back somehow, that means that any of the Starfleet crew members that were killed in the past could be brought back when they went back forward. Except, and also the changeling, whoo, except that the timeline wasn't changed. In Picard, the timeline is changed. So if they change it back, the future in which, uh, or the present in which Elnor was shot will not be the way it is to get him shot. So, you know, that's how I'm seeing that. But in Osvianchim, you know, that one guy was eaten by a shark, okay? Yes, if you go back to the present, he will be gone. Will he be born? Yeah, he would. He would be born however many years before that. He would still end up on the Defiant and the Changeling would still... <laughs> shark. So, yeah. that's Time travel, it, because we don't experience it in real life, is always still a squishy thing, isn't it? And different franchises will handle it different ways. Infinity, War, and Endgame showed MCU's way of handling um, time travel and they left themselves plot holes when they showed Loki. The Time Variance Authority pointed out that the time heist was supposed to happen but it doesn't speak to Captain America, Steve Rogers, going back in time and staying with Peggy. Was that supposed to happen? Or were one of the both, or the both of them, pulled off by the uh, Time Variant Authority and snipped? 
pruned. They should be. Because at that time, the Time Variance Authority was in effect because they, they got Loki. And it took a little while before Loki and Loki, Sophie, uh, ruined the, um, the main timeline thing and it, it all split. I, we think. I'd have to, like, work out the time. Like, we know that he went right from the point that he got the Tesseract in the lobby in 2012. Oh. Oh. So maybe not. That was in 2012 that that stuff happened with Loki. And Steve went back in time years later. In 2023, after they brought everybody back, after they'd had the funeral. <laughs> Whoa, so it was in the split timeline thing. Oh, so that's maybe how he got by with it. Still, that seems to be, it should be much more problematic than it is. And I would be impressed if Marvel brought, brought it back and showed how it was a problem and uh, how maybe there's two versions of Steve now or something. That would, that would be interesting because one would think that all the time that happened in the series Loki happened in our 2012 as present because that's when he went to them. Crazy to think about, isn't it? it kind of makes your head swim. So that's a little difficult to time travel. It's squishy, very squishy. But anyway, I, you know, this one's uh, with Picard. It's a Q change. So maybe, you know, it's even different from what Star Trek deals with, with temporal policy. So we shall see. Don't spoil me. I won't spoil any further than I've seen. It's kind of hard for me to spoil any further than I've seen. Um, I'll leave it at that. So, um, if, you know, this has left you so glum, uh, about as glum as Bashir, please get help. Talk to somebody. Watch some cute kitty videos or cute puppy videos. If you've got kitties or puppies, go play with them. Um... Life isn't as dreary as Bashir makes it out, but, you know, his life may be because I've done terrible things to him. <laughs> I have done, you know, the show did so much and I just added on, piled it, piled it, piled it, piled it on. So, um, do get help. Therapy is an amazing thing. And while I do have difficulties writing it, in a, or at least I have lack of confidence in writing it, but I've used it. I've been to counseling and I've, it, it has done good things for me. So it can do good things for you. Make sure you find a therapist that really gets you because when they don't get it, and my most recent trauma was something very few people get. People who had kids like my kids get it. 
no one else does, which is why I don't elaborate here in this podcast. So I chose the same therapist that saw my kids because she understood. And I, you know, she understood the parents' side of it as well as the children's. And it got to the point where we couldn't afford it, but I was already feeling better. I, I started going to her after I got fired for the second time. So I was like, well, something's going on that keeps me going down that road. So I'm going to work on it. Um, it does help. The times that I have been so depressed that I felt bad for kittens being born because they're just going to die anyway. Um, that's how gone I was. Um, antidepressants do help. As my doctor told me, sure, it can be circumstances that are depressing you, but that does change your body chemistry. So the medication can help correct the chemistry which can help you get through the circumstances that are depressing you. Because I was always like, well, you can't put a pill on, you know, a pill's not going to change the circumstances. No, it can change your body chemistry so that you can better handle the circumstances. I um, still am on antidepressants. So, you know, they, I, they help keep me in a good place. And knowing that people are reading my stories and that I have stories still to write makes me not so down there because, you know, I foster kittens now. I love seeing kittens <laughs> being, maybe not being born, that's kind of gruesome, but <laughs> I love seeing kittens after they're born. It's, it's amazing, especially when you get little white ones and they change colors as they grow up. It's just amazing. And it's amazing how they go from little helpless, blind and deaf things that can barely move to jumping around and playing and opening their big blue eyes and their little ears pop up. It's just, it's just fascinating. And then watching them grow up into cats. Um, sure, cats aren't as cute as kittens. They're cute, but they're not as cute as kittens. But it's amazing how they change. And when we had Rolfi and his brother and sister as fosters, when they were about five weeks old, we knew he was long-haired. But we didn't know just how long-haired he was. <laughs> They, they do what I call blooming. They bloom at five weeks or so, and you can, you can know then. But they de-bloom about nine months or so, and they're not all that long-haired. But they bloom again, and that rough grows around their necks and down their chest and poofs out around, and around their necks, and their tails poof and maybe floof and their little britches get all big and fluffy, which means stuff can get stuck in it, but you know, it's still cute. Um, not the stuff in there, <laughs> but the britches. <laughs> and um, I just love the long haired 
medium and long-haired kitties. They're just my favorite. So all of mine are. That's why we kept Ralphie. Because once we saw he was the fuzzy one, we had to keep him. <laughs> Find things that bring you joy. And please come back and listen to Faith uh, Peace. Faith Part 3 Peace. Because it's the culmination of the story. And I do like to leave my stories with an up. Maybe not a full-on happy ending but an up, which means you can kind of see it pointed in that direction. So I am not going to leave us down in the doldrums. We might hang in there some, some more, but in the end, by chapter 18, <laughs> things are going to start looking up. Okay? I promise. So go find some happy stories to read. Um, go read some funny stuff. If you like Lord of the Rings, I highly recommend Dwem or Dean's The Hamster. That's Dwem or Dean. Uh, Dean is D-E-N-E -E at the end. D-W-I-M-O-R-D-E-N-E, -I, -E -I, -E, I believe it is. Hilarious. Find stuff by the Fanfic Lounge, uh, by Cassie. Uh, it's called the Fanfic Lounge. She has several stories, and one of them is Star Trek-based. and it's, the, it's hilarious. It's basically that the actors go to this lounge in between acting out the, not the actors, the characters go to this lounge in between acting out the fanfics that we write. <laughs> when Beer Shears shows up at the door, he, he faints unconscious. <laughs> and then when he wakes up, he's like, why? And they're like, well, you're just so good looking when you're unconscious. <laughs> It's hilarious. So go read some funny stuff. They're out there. Hila there is a Winter Soldier comedy story. Yeah, I know. It's like, what? Winter Soldier is like trauma, 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 trauma. But there is actually a funny story. It's called A Successful Mission by Katita. That's K-E-T-I-T-A. And the summary is not that the asset's opinions interest anyone, but it thinks that its new Hydra handlers may be a bit dim. <laughs> I, my comment was, never thought I could laugh at the whole Winter Soldier attacks in, in Winter Soldier, but I can. It's really funny. Another one um, I read just to see if the guy could pull it off, and it was hilarious. And it's called... Um, this Citadel Ain't Big Enough for the Two of Us by That Sassy Captain, all one word. Or How Transporters Do As They Are Want to Do and Leonard McCoy Isn't All That Happy About It. This is a TOS, the original series, Lord of the Rings crossover. So that transporter incident leaves McCoy in the middle of the Pelennor Fields after the battle. <laughs> and it's absolutely hilarious um if you're into star trek enterprise oral tradition by lady Alyssa and random dent archived by warp 5 complex archivist is quite possibly the funniest fanfic i've ever read that's the comment i put on that malcolm's insane granny possible weight discovers that trip has a fine reading voice i'm just remembering Oh my gosh! So there is 
funny fanfic out there. If you need it, go find it. <laughs> it is worth it. You can hurt yourself laughing. It's a great, great therapy. All right. Well, I will leave you with those recommendations from my bookmarks on... Uh, um, there's a few others. on My bookmarks on AO3. Do please email me, but not spoil me, at inhildy at gmail.com or tweet me at inhildy. And, of course, inhildy is spelled I-N-H-E-I-L-D-I. See you soon.